Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Film Critic. And I'm Ann Thompson, arrived just now in Park City, Utah. And we have a very special guest joining us at the beginning of the festival. Although he's not with us in person, we thought his perspective would be really valuable for this week's edition. Do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Tom Brigerman. I write every weekend for Thompson on Hollywood on Box Office. So welcome, Tom. We, we're really excited to have you right now because there are so many movies at this year's festival worth talking about, but people tend to forget in the sort of heat of the moment how much that's not as relevant as whether or not people see these movies when they finally come out in theaters. And I'm thinking back to last year when there were films like Dope that sold for lots of money, and then all of a sudden they didn't do super great. And so we wanted to bring that context early on and talk a little bit about last year's indie box office as well as specifically Sundance films and how they tend to do. So just to as, as sort of uh, a kind of a prologue to all that kind of stuff. Tell us a little bit about last year's indie box office and, and whether or not you thought it was a particularly strong year. Well, it's sort of interesting because I did the research and I went into it thinking, wow, it was an off year. It doesn't mean good things and consistent with what seemed to be the decline in specialized last year. In reality, last year wasn't much different from other festivals. People forget Sundance is 40% documentaries. It's American independent films. It's in January. It's not a time where, unlike Toronto or Cannes, where people have their biggest grossing films, certainly not the studios, and even the, the specialized companies, sometimes it's the smaller, more independent, more daring films that are playing at the festival. Uh, the surprise to me was that the top two films so far that premiered, and there were, of the 127 feature films that played at Sundance last year, 110 were world premieres. Of those, uh, the two biggest grossing ones actually outgrossed the biggest grossing one of the year before. Uh, if you went down the streets and asked people what the biggest hit so far from last year's Sundance was, I doubt that more than 1% could answer. But at this point, it's a walk in the woods at $29 million. Huh. The movie, broad green. Yeah, a broad green picture that Robert Redford didn't sound like he even wanted to play at the festival because he was in he, it. I don't think he really uh, you know, promoted it that much. Yeah, they, they, they screened that out in Salt Lake, which tends to be where certain titles are for a different kind of audience sensibility. But maybe that's exactly why it did so well, right? What was the gross? At $29 million. Wow. Be, I did not realize that. In a, that. That went wide. It didn't even open a platform, but they went around Labor Day, found a niche of older audiences who were hungry for a new picture, and it worked. Uh, the second biggest, which is going to outgross it because of its being in Oscar contention, is Brooklyn, which is a little bit under $26 million now, but should head over $30 million, possibly higher, depending on how well it does. Uh, so th- those two are both bigger than the biggest film from the previous year, which was Boyhood, which did $25 million. So the one that everybody thinks was the big flop is Earl and the Dying, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Yeah, I think the perception of last year being disappointing is because Me and Earl, uh, which only grossed six million something, uh, and Dope, which went wide, and its fifteen million dollar gross doesn't look as good because of its having gone so deep so early. That there's a sense that that last year was more disappointing than it actually was. And what was the final gross for my favorite movie last year, um, Diary of a Teenage Girl? Uh, let me look at my sheet here. I think that was around $2 million, but I can tell you exactly. Yeah, that point. disappointed, too. So what, if you had a theory, uh, Tom, as to why those two films in particular, and I have a theory, but why, why didn't they do better? Uh, I think Me and Earl was a case of a film that 
was a little bit overhyped uh, based on its its high end reaction in Sundance, including the deal, which does tend to add to the hype on these things. Uh, and um, that that may have rebounded against it. And I think it's also more of a niche film. It's not an older audience film, which is where the money is these days, and that's a, a little bit of a problem that Sundance has. Walk in the Woods sort of shows that with its success, is that it tends to have, its audiences tend to be younger audiences, its filmmakers tend to be younger filmmakers, and most of the money in Specialized these days is in older audiences. But this also opens up a bigger question, which uh, we've been talking a lot about lately, which is that maybe that, that this is just signaling a marketplace shift, that the, there's just more of a market now at Sundance for companies that have more flexibility with the kinds of releases that they can plan. And obviously the, the digital platforms like Netflix are starting to make the more traditional distributors a little nervous in that respect. And it's yeah. also interesting because Fox Searchlight has always had the ability to reach the younger demo. They have confidence that they know how to do that, and this time that confidence was not rewarded. But I must point out there were no stars, no names, no reason why anyone would necessarily go beyond the reviews. It's true. And the paradigm for uh, kind of the big Sundance acquisition over the past decade was Little Miss Sunshine, which premiered here 10 years ago, which sold to Fox Searchlight for what? Six or seven million dollars, some some, some was, kind. That's about right. And that did pretty well. So that I think that really tells you just how much of a, a different climate we're in right now. And Searchlight doesn't have the flexibility that some of the other companies have when you have the big studio specialty divisions like Sony Pictures Classics. Um, they are forced to to play by the big studio rules. And there was an example where with the Duplass brothers pickup, they farmed out a VOD release via another distributor. I believe it was Laura Kim's company. That's Is right. that right, Tom? Remember this? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. But, but that, that I'm, I'm wondering how much these com- you know, how much the, the studio specialty divisions are going to have to re- rethink the kinds of deals that they can do. Right. Sony yeah. won't do it, but Fox Searchlight might. Searchlight and, and whatever Paramount's going on, got going on these days. And well, they picked others. up Anna Melissa, but they thought they had an Oscar contender there, and they did. Right, right. This is not a festival where you make those kinds of acquisitions necessarily. What kind of other patterns did you discern, Mr. Brueggemann? Well, I think you know one of the things that, that is Sundance is really strong to, and it speaks to your point about other non-studio or other uh, theatrically driven distributors being important. Of the 110 world premieres at Sundance last year, I'm counting, and this could be off by a number, something between 85 and 90 uh, either have distributors or have been shown on HBO, Showtime, PBS, whatever, or on video on demand or will be. There still actually are several films from last year still to be released by uh, by significant companies like Sony Classics and uh, and Broad Green, uh, and, and A24, The Witch is coming out next month, which is a sign of being a successful film. So, I mean, it, films get out, but most of them do not do their, make their mark theatrically. Most of the films gross under a million. Probably, I didn't do the exact count, but I wouldn't be surprised if a majority is grossed under 100,000 theatrically. So they get exposed, but theatrical, for the most part, is not where the money is. So, so I mean, I guess one of the things that the questions that this raises for me is 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 the hype surrounding this this marketplace at Sundance maybe misleading. I mean, 
there are a lot of movies that have been picked up ahead of the festival. And this notion that buyers need to come in and see these movies with a certain audience or a certain kind of reaction in order to make business decisions might be somewhat disingenuous when we're talking about, I mean, if it's a theatrical need that's, that's being met, those audiences aren't necessarily at this festival, so they need something else to gauge whether or not they can be successful. That's interesting. I, I would actually suggest that because it's still a seller's market, um, that more people are showing movies ahead of time than they used to because they're, they, they're worried. And I think there are a lot of players who still have pie-in-the-sky fantasies about what they can achieve and are going to try to achieve them. And then when they don't, reality will set in later. So, Tom, are you feeling optimistic about the next 12 months in terms of all these things going on? I mean, there, there certainly were some successes out of this festival and others, as you said before. I haven't focused that much on, on this year's Sundance films. Uh, I do think, honestly, my, and this has sort of been the tone of a lot of my writing, I think we are going through a major shift right now. And uh, uh, more and more of the companies are looking for ways to take advantage of the uh, the alternative uh, uh, ways of showing movies. Uh, we, you know, some of the, the biggest companies, uh, you know, Fox Searchlight in 2015 or 2014 had Grand Budapest Hotel grow $60 million. Uh, their best film this year is going to be Brooklyn around $30 million. As the, the second exotic Marigold Hotel did a little bit more than that as well early last year. Uh, there just seems to be a downslope that, that, that the heights are, are much more difficult to reach for whatever and, combination of reasons. And Sony didn't have a good year either. Yeah. Um, and Weinstein had a challenging year. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's so you, it, whether that may make companies, though, hungrier to go after the big film, because the thing about a festival like Sundance, even more than, than Toronto and Cannes, is that people are expected to acquire films, that, that, that how they are gauged in the world the, the specialized world is by what they get. In a lot of cases, uh, if they are more acquisition-driven, they have holes in their release schedule over the next year that they have to fill. So the, the Sundance is very well push, positioned five months after, after, after Toronto, the last major acquisition festival, uh, with nothing really until Cannes for domestic audiences. They're maybe really maybe some, something out of South By, but that's not a big acquisitions festival. Yeah. Yeah. What strikes me here is that Netflix and Amazon are the, you know, the big footprints that we don't know how deep they're going to be, you know, they, how much they money they're going to throw around. They love that there's this ambiguity yeah. and speculation. I mean, everybody else has a much bigger track record. We know these guys have deep pockets and they can spend. Even if they don't deliver, they can offer a really enticing deal. So that, that makes other people who are tr maybe trying to innovate in other kinds of ways a little more nervous in that respect. It's interesting to look at the Beasts of No Nation uh, example with Netflix because I think it was an anomaly where they wanted to please the filmmaker. They wanted to make a statement. They wanted to suggest that they were in the Oscar uh, uh, arena, even if they weren't in the end. Um, they're much better at documentaries. I would think that Netflix is really top of the walk on the, with HBO now in the, in the documentary category. Amazon is offering a real theatrical option, and I'm curious to see whether they're going to open up their wallets this time. Well, they already have the Whit Stillman movie, which is here, and I think that alone is something of a statement to go into the festival with the movie and then just sort of see how things go. So, yeah, they'll, they'll be one to watch. 
Well, we have a lot more to discuss, but I'm so glad we could have Tom on today to make uh, all the buyers super nervous as they get settled in their condos <laughs> and figure out their, their plans for the next few days. The voice of authority. Thank you for joining <laughs> us, Tom. I hope to have you back. Happy to be there. Thanks. So here we are uh, back in uh, Park City, Utah. Uh, Tom, thank you very much. And Eric, uh, what's next on our agenda? Gosh, too much to take into account. I mean, every time I create my schedule for Sundance, something topples it. It's a real domino effect. But I love that. I mean, it it reminds you at the start of every year why this is such a vital uh, task. Because you you throw yourself into the setting and you realize that there are the big movies that might sell. And then there are the little ones that no one's talking about that you want to discover. There's the parties. There's the events and the panels. and, And there's this strange concept called sleep. So trying to find an equilibrium with all that kind of stuff is a really unique challenge at Sundance in particular because it's it's a very well-organized festival in some ways, but it really depends on what your priorities are. I mean, in my case, there's a lot of stuff I want to see so that I kind of get the general narrative of, you know, where the marketplace is at. I want to see those movies that sell big, whether it's The Birth of a Nation, the, the uh, Nate Turner uh, uh, movie about uh, slavery revolt, which a lot of people are talking about, or Christine from Antonio Campos. But I also want to see all these smaller films in the next category, which could be real discoveries and maybe not commercial, and they could go on any number of different directions. Going to the big acquisition screenings is sometimes the riskiest thing you can do. I tend to go more toward the name directors that I can be counting on, you know, Werner Herzog, you know, that kind of thing, just, or, or, or Todd Solons, you know, just to, to be sure that I can keep up with what they're doing. And, and it is great to see a lot of those people here this year, whether it's those two or, or, uh, or Kelly Reichert definitely. Uh, with certain women. And seeing those people who are still at it after all these years is, I mean, it, it may be a hyperbole to say it's inspiring because we haven't seen a lot of these films yet. But what I would say is that it's, it's, it's nice to see the consistency there because there's always this conversation at Sundance about what What's the new thing? What's the next paradigm? And I, you can almost sense the anxiety of the programmers about wanting to be ahead of the curve. You see all the VR programs that they have this year and, and the, the I'm TV. excited by that. I'm actually going to go and check those out. Lucy Walker has a short film, and there's a lot of action over on the VR side I mean, of the Frontiers. It's, it's all very exciting, but it's also very different from what these other filmmakers have just been doing consistently. And so the question is, is what they're doing antiquated because the marketplace is Shifting. I mean, the TV section has things like the girlfriend experience, for example, which is involves people like Amy Simons and Caitlin Shiel, who are these kind of indie I know, names, kind of icons you know? now. So. I, I mean, I think that it just shows you that there's room for everybody to some degree. Then again, once we see if any of that stuff is any good, we'll have a better sense of whether or not it's just there because of pressure from this sense to be, you know, a part of the conversation of where things are heading or if these things are actually there because they're, they're good. And well, we're going to find some good ones and we're going to find some bad ones. And what happens is you take your slice. You make your choice. You have to be nimble. You're right. You have to listen to the people on the street telling you what they just saw to actually be on a shuttle and listen to that. But um, for me, there's also a lot of uh, networking and socializing, and and I try every year to see more movies and do less interviews, and guess what? I always get caught. They, They drag me back in. You know, so I'm going to talk to Maggie's Plan director, Rebecca Miller, which is a movie I saw in Toronto, which I loved. And uh, I've got some other, you know, Kelly Reichert and other things going on that, that uh, I just don't want to miss. I put together my schedule and I've got things sort of wall to wall for three or four days, but I stay for long enough that once things settle down, I start to 
look around a little bit more. And I'm just really, really curious about a lot of different things this year. The Borderline Films guys who who, who made uh, Christine, Antonio Campos, as part of that trio, they also executive produced this hour-long film in Next called Eyes of My Mother, which... It's, a, it's apparently the first of several movies that they're, they're hoping to, to kind of push out there. And uh, a filmmaker named Taika Waititi has Hunt for the Wilder People, which sounds like a total charmer. And he's about to go make another Thor movie. So seeing these filmmakers where they're kind of straddling the line between kind of doing smaller, more intriguing stories and also kind of breaking out and, and reaching a larger audience is always really exciting for me because on the one hand, you know, th- there's this question of, you know, how big you want to get. On the other hand, if you can kind of reach a bigger audience while also doing things your own way, then everybody wins. And so I'm also hoping to check out the Midnight section, which speaks to a very particular sensibility and, and generally doesn't end up being the, 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 the section that everybody talks about. But that's what I like about it is that some people talk about it and and that that particular sensibility that kind of like narrow casting of a sensibility is is just as valuable especially in today's marketplace so a movie like under the shadow which is this iranian uh, horror film that's set during the iran iraq war is is something that i'm i'm super curious about as well as a, a movie called greasy strangler which sounds like a lot of fun but uh, there's you know. a lot of good docs and one of the things to remember is that the sundance people are picking the absolute cream of the crop. It is so hard to get into the doc uh, competition. Well, they're looking the at the cream of the crop. They're, they're, Did well, they pick it? it? We don't know it, yet. Every year, every year, there's several films that end up going on to the Oscars. Did, did they just think about that. Of all the docs that came out all year long, two of them, Cartel Land and what happened, Miss Simone, right. debuted at Sundance. That was right. a long time ago. And some of the ones that were on the short list, like Hunting Ground, debuted here. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, 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 they're gatekeepers. Sure. They're curators. They figure out what's going to be the most important uh, docs t- that are going to come out in the course of the year. But that degree of influence also allows for the possibility of changing the terms of the conversation. I'm really, really curious to see reactions to Kate Plays Christine, a movie in U.S. documentary competition that I happened to see early, and uh, is essentially the same storyline that the narrative film Christine is about, this uh, news anchor in Florida, Christine Chubbuck, who committed suicide. But it's actually about the actress, Caitlin Shio, who's also in the Girlfriend Experience, gearing up to play that character. So she's the it girl this year. She is, she's a bit of an it girl. It happens in these parts. But, uh, but it's, a, it's a movie that plays with our expectations of truth and fiction because it's sort of a documentary about documenting that suicide and whether or not that's uh, uh, you know, morally problematic and things like that that some people, like myself, really latch onto and get excited about. And I love talking about until I turn blue in the face and, and bore everyone around me. But there are other people who may just find it in, infuriatingly, you know, eccentric and... and, and or artfully and, arcane. Art, yes. <laughs> I knew that term would come up. No. I'm, uh, one of the, well, one filmmaker that I'm looking forward to seeing whether uh, he fulfills his promise is uh, Diego Luna, who has a film called Mr. Pig. And he is uh, obviously a huge powerhouse as, as an actor, producer, director in Mexico. Um, uh, but he hasn't really made his mark. Abel was play, played here a few years ago, which I loved. And then uh, the last one he did was, this, was the Cesar Chavez movie. So um, I'm curious to see how this one plays out. 
and then there's Iris Sachs with Little Men. Iris Sachs has done sort great. Of a regular here. I mean, he won the the Grand Jury Prize a number of years ago for Forty Shades of Blue, and then came back with uh, Keep the Lights On, and then with uh, Love Is Strange, and and all of those movies are just such wonderfully complex character studies. And this one, which stars these two young New York boys, and they have a really complex relationship over, over a number of years. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I love these filmmakers who, who just have a certain consistency to what they do. It's not like now this person needs to take things up a notch in terms of scale or make a big studio movie. You just keep getting the same kind of storyteller each time out, and sometimes that's okay. Now, there are other things that we don't know, like these first-time directors. That's why I'm excited, because there's going to be talent. There's going to be discoveries. There's going to be the next Miles Teller. Um, or I remember the year that that I saw The Lift and, and Carrie Washington was a great discovery that year. I mean, it doesn't take rocket science. I mean, if you if you see Winter's Bone and you recognize that Jennifer Lawrence is this amazing talent, you know, everybody else recognizes it too, but it's exciting when it happens. Yeah, I wish I had more of an eye for, for discovering actors. I tend to gravitate more towards the, the director side of the equation, but I, but I really hope people do talk more about Tim Sutton after this year's festival. He's got this movie Dark Knight about sort of about the Aurora movie theater shooting but it's more of a meditation on the events surrounding that shooting the kind of uh, sort of suburban malaise that led up to it it's got a bit of a Gus Van Sant minimalism to it but it's really Tim Sutton's work because he's made a couple other movies before one of which played here called Memphis and uh, I wouldn't say that this is you know his big commercial breakout but it may be the one that gets people talking the most simply because of the subject matter and it's a really talented filmmaker who deserves at least the the kind of street cred of somebody who's gone to Sundance and and, and received that recognition Um, well it's gonna be fun are you gonna go through a long laundry list here or should we move on well why don't we talk about what you just went through that has absolutely nothing to do with the movies in this year's lineup, which is the art house convergence. Because, yeah, uh, now that was interesting. Um, what I did, and I'm going to have to write it up, of course, um, is I went to this really fun uh, thing where they do these show and tells where they have to do it. It's a, it's, what is it called? Pitchiku or something. They have to do it really fast. They have slides, and they have to talk against them, and it's sort of like speed talking. <laughs> and it really works, because they're forced to be very concise and tell a story. I can probably use that on, that <laughs> pod- on this podcast sometimes. Yeah. I think people are going to want to hear what you think of the movies after you see them. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so basically, they uh, it was fun to see all these little theaters and how they have to do these capital campaigns and where they, you know, when they were founded in 1910 and, and what happened during the horrible era when they were shut down in the 70s and how they created extra screens and renovated and raised capital funds for a new uh, theater. And, and it was there were about five of them, and I'll, I'll write that up. That was fun. And, and the thing that I learned, uh, Tom was talking about how challenging the specialty marketplace is uh, right now. And, of course, the art house exhibitors are concerned and, and worried about it and happy if they've got spotlight and unhappy if they can't get spotlight. Um, but and, and they are complaining a lot about the kind of controls that still exist. Uh, there's still this arcane 
practice called clearances, which has to do with big theater chains demanding that they play certain films in certain neighborhoods. And Different kind other, of arcane practice than, than the art, artfully art. arcane. Yeah, not and, an aesthetic and, and, uh, and then, and then uh, in the sense that these things should be long out of date, you know. Right. Uh, but, but, this, but, the, but the thing, you know, so there are these smaller mom and pops still struggling, especially among the art houses, to actually get the films. And I, I really have a sense of that, that there are all these theaters that have audiences that do play independent films that can't get the films that they want. And I know that there are distributors who have a sort of established pattern of who they go to in each market and are not always open uh, to changing that pattern. Um, and then the other thing that struck me is that they're, they're really starting film communities. They, they're building them and they're doing other things. They're playing National Theater Live. They're playing all this alternative programming. They're having concerts. They're having theater events. They're raising the screen and creating a stage experience. They're, they're, doing, they're, they're creating other markets for themselves other than art house films is the truth of the matter. Well, it just makes so much sense. There's a really cool-sounding theater opening in New York in the coming months called the Metrograph, which, as it's been described to me, is trying to be sort of the Bowery Hotel for you know, people who love movies. So it's it's going to be an event space with some bars and cafes, and they're programming all kinds of really cool retrospectives. But you can make a day of it. You can hang out there and watch movies, go to events, go to parties. And then the screenings are part of the equation, but they're not necessarily driving the, the, the revenue as, as sort of this central element. So I think one of the things that these people are all trying to figure out, as far as I can tell, is just that the, there's this idea that the movie theater has a different identity in our culture now, not that it's go, going away, but that it's evolving into some other kind of paradigm in this st- stage when, look, everybody likes to watch stuff at home, probably a lot of the people at the conference among them, even if they don't want to admit it. Well, what's interesting, too, is that there's still some alter... You know, there's this one guy running around who was basically going to the theaters one-on-one and booking his movie, right? And there seems to be a lot more... uh, You know, if if the distributors are looking for bigger, you know, the established big distributors are looking for bigger movies, um, and all these little theaters can't get them, they can go to to festivals. They can book uh, movies that they like, that they think will play for their audiences. They don't have to wait for the distributors to do that. And I thought that was an interesting trend. And there's also something called Cineconductor, which is a content delivery for distributors and exhibitors. And you can actually go on this website, you can see the trailers, you can see the publicity assets, you can download the DCP and book the movie. See, that's super cool to me because all these conversations that I've had with people about how, okay, TV is king and it's supplanting movies and the conversation, or or maybe VR is going to do all of that this year and TV itself will be antiquated, you know, that only, to me, from like an aesthetic perspective, makes movies more interesting because if they're marginalized, then the weirder stuff has always been a hard sell. But if people are already realizing that and figuring out how to get those movies out there, then they're just kind of going to create their own internal network and their own distribution model. And the point is, is that these are local cinemas and they know their own local audience and they know how to reach them and they are more sophisticated about social media and how to reach out to their audience than they've ever been and Emily Best was there and gave a keynote and gave her you know best practices which is about learning 
you know, which social media your audience is actually looking at, which seems obvious. But if your audience is more into Facebook than Twitter, then you aim at Facebook. If you're into Instagram, you right. aim at Instagram. I mean, some people's eyes glaze over when they hear these sort of things about social media. The most important thing is that somebody who's creating some kind of art that isn't naturally going to just get out there, they need to be cognizant of what those challenges are and, and figure out a model for doing it. So if you're not good at social media, find somebody to do it for you. Don't necessarily assume that it's just going to happen around you because you made something brilliant. So that's something that it'll be you know interesting to look at some of the, the, the weirder movies in this year's lineup that you know, some of which I might like quite a bit and think in terms of, you know, what what might somebody do to get audiences to realize that they're worth their time? I mean, I, I think uh, a great example of a Sundance breakout from last year that we didn't talk about earlier is uh, Don Hertzfeld's short film, World of Tomorrow, now nominated for Best Animated Film. Uh, did and, you talk uh, about that last we week? We talked about it when the nominations came out, but what I think is interesting about Don is that he makes a living making these films because he tours around with them. You can buy the DVDs and merchandise on his website, and he's got his own fans. And there's all sorts of programs that are geared towards shorts that are growing and burgeoning and, and traveling around the world. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're enormous. Yeah, it's a real paradigm shift in that respect. The, the, the in short fact, festivals films. are fighting for world premieres of shorts yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. You know? exactly. Which I think is not necessarily a good thing. They should yeah. be able to go everywhere. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, it, these, are, these are not the most obvious commercial propositions, and they need all the exposure they can get, and audiences don't care, so it's not that big a deal. In any case, we have so much more that we need to talk about, but first we need to see some movies to have the context. If you're at Sundance and listening, please come to the Kickstarter Lounge on Monday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time so that we can uh, hear all your hard questions as we'll be recording uh, Screen Talk there on Main Street. And uh, if you're not there, you can listen to it later. The harder the questions, the better. Exactly. Or you can just throw stuff because uh, we can take it. <laughs> 